So we are going to uh, knock at least the majority of Genesis 8 out here today. But before we do that, we got to remember a few things. Uh, I want to remind you, Genesis 8 basically is the end of the flood period. Okay, so last week we talked a lot about uh, Genesis 7, which is when uh, God gave, uh, uh, well, 6, God gave Noah all the instructions how to build the ark and told him all sorts of things, gather all the animals, two of each kind. Remember when we talked about kind, that doesn't mean all the breeds, it means more species than breeds. And I gave you all sorts of really cool facts about how big the ark is and how those animals all fit in the ark with enough room for food. Amen? Do you remember all that? I don't need to go over all that again, right? So I proved to you and I showed you that in reality there's so much um, disgust, shall we say, for this story um, because it's it's called not true and da 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 and it's not, there's no way it could happen. But I showed you last week that it could happen. Amen? So we had, we had some real good times last week. Uh, I also showed you uh, quite a few, and I read quite a few of the geological digs that they've been doing and the things that they have found and uh, giant caches of fossils, of uh, all sorts of tons of animals, all crammed into small areas, and they look like they've been straining, and it's a definite uh, global liquefaction that has happened during this time frame. And you know, it's becoming more and more and more obvious to scientists what actually happened here, that this flood actually happened. But it has been the hardest thing for scientists to agree to, because if they agree to that, it messes up everything. So you're really not going to hear a whole lot. But more and more as you read things and as geologists do things, they start saying words like global liquefaction. That is, those are fancy words for flood, okay? It happened. Okay, it happened. Everybody say, it happened. It absolutely happened. The first ten chapters of Genesis, I told you last week, are the highest disputed pieces of literature of all mankind. There is no other written word that has created more dispute than the first 10 chapters of Genesis. Fight upon fight, wars, political wars, social wars. And right now there's the war over the hearts and spirits of every single person, generation worldwide. The first 10 chapters. Did God really create? Is, is the earth young? Well, I will tell you what, you can't even go into one museum across, well, there is one, it's called the Institute, the Creation Museum. But okay, minus that one, you can't go into any museums across the world that will not tell you that, that the world is not, you know, billions and trillions of years old. You just can't. Regardless of the lies and regardless of the, um, the conflicting scientific research. In fact, they say right now, I was listening to a, a teaching. They, uh, one of the teachings said that for every 10 um, dating and uh, you know, research for the age of the earth, nine show a young earth and one can be construed as an old earth. And what do they go with? The old earth. 
It's getting harder and harder and harder for them to stay in their little philosophical box that says that this world is billions of years old because it's not. They find rocks now. They found rock. Well, rock. Yeah. What do you think of that? They found a rock. You know? <laughs> wow. Rocks. They have found in rocks. Okay. That's really what I should have said. They have found in rocks. Rocks contain helium. Helium is a very busy little gas. It just wants to and get away. So hence you, you buy a helium balloon. What happens to it? It goes, no, it doesn't run off. Well, it wants to run off. That's right. It's that little helium going, I want to get out of here. Okay, so it, it lifts up. But what happens if you set it on your table or you tie it on the end of your bed for a while? It deflates. Why? The helium is trying to get out so bad. And they know how the rate at which helium is escaping rocks. And the very fact that there is still helium in rocks proves that the earth is less than 10,000 years old. There is no way it can be greater than 10,000 years because the amount of helium that is still resting in rocks. But they go ahead and say, you know, 75 billion years ago, da 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 da. It can't be. Do you understand? There's times, there's thing after thing after thing. And uh, so that's part of what I'm here, uh, you know, in this series because I want to teach you. I want to teach you that you can trust this thing right here called the Bible. Jesus says in John 3, I have spoken to you about earthly things. And I know I'm kind of misconstruing because I'm not reading it straight out of the Bible. I've, I've spoken to you of earthly things and you have not believed me. How can I speak to you about spiritual things? And the Bible talks to us constantly about physical, earthly, you know, things. He says it flat out. This is how I did it. And man doesn't want to listen to that. So how can we expect man then to listen about spiritual things? So the men and women of humanity who have refused to listen to the Bible about earthly things, about basic things, they are also the people that will not listen about spiritual things. Makes complete sense. Very, very interesting. So I just want to show you. I just, I just am so excited. Poor Dwayne, he doesn't have a wife anymore because I'm getting so excited. All I can do is like, you know, watch more videos and read more this and that about this because I just have so much that I want to share with you because I want to place inside of you an excited energy for this thing called God and this Bible and his wisdom and the walk you're walking. You are not walking the wrong walk. You are walking the right walk. And you might want to look around and think you're the only one walking, but keep walking. Because at the end, you're going to be glad you walked the right walk and not the wrong walk. Amen? Amen? Okay. All right. So, um, so much. So there's, there's been such a swing from the very beginning, uh, AD 33, when, when Christ died and rose again and the church was born. From that point on, the church really reigned and ruled in education and in science. And every um, aspect of science, um, the, the monks, the Jesuit monks, and all the, the really cutting-edge scientists were Christians. And they came out of the church. All right? 
So there was a whole, if you, if you, you could just give me a second here. For many hundreds of years, the church reigned and ruled when it came to science and any kind of that, that sort of thing. The church, though, over the years began to fight with each other. They fought. Eventually, the Protestants had to break away from the Catholic Church, and wars were fought between the Catholics and the Protestants, and blood was spilt. Hundreds and thousands of lives clear across Europe. Europe was ravaged with religious wars for hundreds of years. So after the Catholics and the Protestants fought it out, then the Protestants started fighting with the Protestants. There were the Calvinists, who believed, you know, that uh, eternal predestination, and then there were the other guys who didn't believe in that, and they started fighting wars. They started killing everybody. And, you know, the peasant was like, would you guys stop? I just want to plow. I just want to, you know, like have my family. Would you stop fighting? So at about 1800, 17s to 1800s, the basic humanity, the basic population got really fed up with religion. And they came into an, an era called the Enlightenment. And during the Enlightenment, especially the, in, the, in France, it was a clear across America, or Europe, but what they did was the people just finally said, I'm tired of religion. Stop. Stop fighting. Stop killing everyone. And science then began, you know, scientists, different scientists began to discover things. And they were so fed up now with religion that it became, science became the religion of the day. So from that time on, science began to shove Christianity and God out of the spotlight. Because God had not, religion had not done well for the people at this point entirely. And science began to rise. Okay? That's where we sit today. That's where we sit today. But I want to tell you that it's beginning to swing back. Because science without God, a story without the writer, a reason, you know, something without a reason, really loses its life. So now what we have to do is we have to swing this thing back. we got to bring back God who doesn't kill you or I, because, you know, we don't kill each other just because we differ. We love one another. And we bring this thing back. And then we win the, the respect. So that's on our side. But on God's side, what he's been busy doing over the last years is dazzling scientists. Absolutely dazzling them. Even the ones that have been declaring God is dead, they have declared themselves as, as God's pallbearers, you know, carrying the dead casket. God is not alive anymore. There's books written all. God has outlived the pallbearers. And he's been knocking on that casket, and he's been rattling that casket, and the pallbearers are like, whoa, you know, and he's, he's climbing out of the casket. He never died. He's always been alive. So let me read to you some things here, okay? Am I boring you? I haven't started the Bible yet. I told you, pray for me. We want to do Genesis 8. Okay, so my favorite book here. One of the most striking discoveries in modern science has been the laws and constants of physics, unexpectedly, that they unexpectedly conspire in an extraordinary way to make the universe habitable for life. 
For instance, said physicist philosopher Robin Collins, gravity is fine-tuned to one part. Now, get this. Anybody taking notes? Get ready. Fine-tuned. Gravity is fine-tuned to one part in a hundred million, billion, 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 billion. Gravity. The thing you don't ever think about, but it affects you all the time. We are spinning right now at a high rate. I always forget what we're... What's the high rate of... I'm looking at the teacher. Come on, buddy. <laughs> I always say it's an amazing amount of miles per hour. And then we're flying through space. And we're sitting here. And gravity is so fine-tuned, you can take a glass of water and set it right here. And it won't even slosh. It just sits there. How can that be? And scientists are looking at that going, oh, it's just an accident. It's killing them. It really is. The cosmological constant, which represents the energy density of space, is a precise, as precise as throwing a dart from space and hitting a bullseye just a trillionth of a trillionth of an inch in diameter on Earth. <sighs> One expert said there are more than 30 physical or cosmological parameters that require precise calibration in order to produce a universe that can sustain life. Collins demonstrated that chance cannot reasonably account for this anthropic principle and that the most discussed alternative, that there are multiple universes, lacks any evidential support and ultimately collapses under the realization that these other worlds would owe their existence also to a highly designed process. This evidence was so powerful that was, uh, it was instrumental in Patrick Glynn's abandonment of his atheism. Today, the concrete data points strongly in the direction of a God hypothesis, he says. It is the simplest and most obvious solution to the anthropic puzzle. God's climbing out of the coffin. And we're saying, yeah. Okay, people. Most godly Christian people, though, don't get it. Many, many, many godly scientists have rewritten the Bible to accommodate these scientists. But as time goes on, they have to rewrite their accommodations and they come back to Christ. So you, you, you common peasant who just wants to plow his field and live well, right? Not a bad thing to aspire to. I want you to know that you are not following a dead God. But he's a lot smarter than any PhD ever thought of being. So don't fall for it. All right? So now back to Genesis. Shall we go there? This earth is spinning 1,037 miles per hour. You are spinning at 1,000. I knew it was an astronomical number. And then we are flying through the universe at, a, at another really high... Marcy, do you have the numbers over there? Yeah? Yeah, everybody went to their phones. I'm like, come on, people, come back to me. <laughs> All right. So chapter 6. Well, no, I have to start in 6. we got to get a run and start at this thing, okay? <laughs> chapter <laughs> You thought you caught me, didn't you? Oh, no, I'm right here. Chapter 6 speaks of a human race that's immense, immersed in immense total evil, and therefore the need of a just judgment. The foundation of God that he sits on is justice. 
The beauty of our God is that he is completely just. There is no unequal balance. All right? Chapter 7, then, speaks of total and complete annihilation of all creation. I showed you last week how the, the flood actually totally erases creation and it brings it back to a pre-creation state where there's water, there's only water. Okay? So God has... But the problem is, is God couldn't do it completely because there was one righteous man. And God is so just... He is so just that he took that righteous man and his family and and all, you know, two of every animal and nestled it into an ark and saved those people. That though the world was going through a complete and utter judgment that was going to totally wipe the face of the earth clean, it's a watery picture of taking a very dirty dish and scrubbing it. If you, you read the Hebrew, that's what God did in the flood. He took a big old SOS pad. Remember, because I told you evil was not only on the earth, it was in the earth. It had to be cleansed as well. Craziness. So we learn in chapter 7, also um, the flood, if you'll flip your book over to your Bible over to chapter 7, it says that in, um, where does it say? Um, We'll start at verse 11, chapter 7, verse 11. Are you ready, Michael? He said he has to run the projection for me because I go so fast. Okay, chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 11. In the sixth hundredth year of Noah's life, on the seventh day of the second month. Now, put, make that a mental note, okay? Seventeenth day of the second month. And this is not on the, the calendar that we use. This is the Hebrew calendar. Okay, so I'll do some explaining in just a minute. On that day, the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heaven were opened, and rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. Now, a couple things I want to bring out. First of all, Noah only saw the rain. He had no idea what was going on underneath. And that's where the omniscience of God writing through this writer spoke. This is one of the reasons, this is a very one of the little spots in the word that we know God wrote this because no one knew what was going on. Does that make sense? Even when Moses wrote this in 1500 B.C., wrote the book of Genesis, he did not have any understanding. But the Spirit led him to say that the the springs of the deep, the great deep burst forth. Now, something that I've been kind of learning, I listened to quite a few teachings this week, and I had told you last week that 75% of the earth's water is under the crust of the earth. You only see 25% of the water. That is a, you can read it on Nova, there's quite a few. This is a fairly recent decision and discovery of how much water is actually inside of the earth instead of outside of the earth. But right now, you only see 25% of the water, the earth. So the big question was, how in the world, where did all the water come from? Okay, there's some more stuff I want to just really, really dump on you really quick before we move on to chapter 8, and I only have 20 minutes now, um, is that... The entire ocean floor is built on basalt rock, basalt. That is lava rock. 
The entire floor of the ocean is basalt. And when they have done all sorts of really cool, you know, um, discoveries on the ocean floor, the ocean floor is covered in volcanoes. It is pockmarked with volcanoes. And then there's these mountains under the ocean that are ridgelines, that are ridgelines of basalt rock that have come up. So what the thought is, is during this thing, it wasn't necessarily just the water from underneath were just breaking forth, but there was such an immense volcanic event that magma was, and earthquakes were happening so bad. And remember I showed you how the continents all used to fit together? And you've seen that in your, this is when those continents, the the tectonic plates were broken and it, it broke all along the edges of the continents. And those plates fell down deep into the magma and magma began to shoot up. And hot magma is, has a higher density than the cold ones that are falling. And this it's, it's swelling and the, the ocean floor actually is rising and the waters from the ocean now are pouring over the land. huge event. I wish I could show you the maps that they see on the ocean floor. But it was more of a volcanic event within the ocean that caused this catastrophe. It's huge. It's amazing. This is what they're finding. It's completely compatible with the Bible. If if they have seen it, they have found it, they're looking at this thing going, why is the ocean a vast volcanic field? What is Hawaii? Has anybody ever been there? Especially the big island. What is it? It is a huge volcano that grew up in the ocean. And it's still all basalt, you know, this basalt rock. Very little has, you know, gone to dirt. It was a very recent event. Okay, you with me? Very incredible. So chapter 7 leaves us on a cliffhanger. We'll start with verse 23. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped out from the earth. Only Noah was left. And those with him in the ark, the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. Massive, massive, tumultuous catastrophe. A big boat filled with every kind of animal and eight human beings. Can you imagine the trip? Can you imagine the trip? I want you for just a moment, imagine the trip. God comes to you and says, build a boat. It's going to start raining. I'm going to take care of you, and I'm going to establish my covenant with you. Really? Oh, we're going to have some fun with us and God. So he starts building his ark. Finally, on this 17th, uh, 17th day of the second month, God says, go in the ark now. Go in the ark. It's going to be a party. You know, I mean, what are they thinking? I don't know. But they climb in and, and it's God saying, God shut the door. And then it's like, and I can just, if I was Noah's wife, I'd be looking at him like, this is no party. This is no party. I would be holding on to everything. I mean, what is going on? How many times have I told you that in this life? This is no party. What are you doing to me? 
Yes, can you imagine? Yeah, how did you? And he says the same thing, you know, because I wanted four kids and he didn't. (laughs) So it goes both ways, right? So think in your mind. Imagine these eight people. They have no clue what's going on except for the fact that they and a massive amount of animals and hay and feed are being thrown everywhere for days and weeks and months. The rain fell for 40 days, but that wasn't the end of it. So, guess where we're at now? Chapter 8. Are you ready? <laughs> I was just, are you exhausted or what? <laughs> okay, let's do this thing. Chapter 8, verse 1. I love this verse. But God remembered Noah and the wild animals and the livestock stock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters began to recede. But God remembered. God remembered. God remembered. God had a huge job on his hands cleaning this old earth up. And there was so much evil. And his heart was so grieved. And he was having such a bad day with all of these people. I mean, I I say that facetiously. God was, I mean, like catastrophe level. But he remembered. You might think your life right now is on catastrophe level. But I will tell you what. God remembers. This is the same phrase that he used about Abraham and Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. God remembered them. David says numerous times in his Psalms, and God remembered me. God remembered me. I don't care what's going on in your life right now. Yes, I do care. But regardless, shall we say, of what's going on in your life right now, If you think God has forgotten, God does not forget. He has a habit of remembering. He has a habit of remembering. And someone standing, sitting in this room here, I'm the only one standing, so it would be me, but it's not me. But someone in this room feels forgotten. And I would say to you right now, our God does not have a habit of forgetting other than our sins. He has a habit of remembering. God remembered Noah and all those animals that were in the ark. And he sent a breath of wind. He sent a wind over the earth. That wind is ruach. It's the Hebrew word ruach. It is the same word for a couple of different times when we've heard about wind. It's the same word that God sent down to the Red Sea to part it in Exodus 14, verse 21. It is a strong word. It's God's breath. He sent it, and he began to dry out the earth, and the waters began to recede, okay? Verse 2, Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heaven had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of 150 days, the water had gone down. Verse 4, And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains, mountains of Ararat. There isn't one mountain, there's a mountain range. We do not know the mountain that Noah's ark rested on. 
So don't think, you know, that there's a Mount Ararat that you can, actually there is a Mount Ararat that you're going to climb and find Noah's Ark. Because it's speaking here of the mountains of Ararat. It's a whole chain. Okay? I find it very, very interesting here. A couple of things to bring out. God had that ark come to rest on the mountain. Up on the mountains. So he brought rest to this ark and to Noah and to the animals far sooner than the rest of the world. The rest of the world is still underwater, but he had grace and mercy on, on poor Noah's wife, I, I'm sure it was, and said, here, listen, we're going we're gonna to put this on solid ground right now. While the waters recede, you're going to sit right here. I'm going to bring you to a resting place. So this tells me, now, the catastrophe is not totally gone yet. There's still water covering the earth, but God found a place to nestle that little ark in and give it rest. The Bible speaks quite a few times about the rest of God. He brought that little little ark down there. Um, talks about um, it's the same word. It's a set. It's setting. It's setting a place in a calm place. It's also the same word that the Bible uses when it talks about the Spirit of God resting on you. That He sets it on you, a place of calm. The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God rested on Jesus. The Spirit of God rested on Moses. The ark rested. And that's you as well. Amen? Okay, so um, basically, let me give you a little bit of uh, time understanding here. Verse 11 of chapter 7 says that in the 600th year of Noah's life, he's been building that ark for over 100 years. On the seventh day of the second month, the second month is, is uh, November, okay, our November. And the, we're not exactly sure their precision of their calendar, but it is within about a week or two, somewhere within November, okay? So he went into the ark approximately during the month of November, our calendar, Okay? So now what we find that on the 17th day of the seventh month, this is five months later, this puts it in the month of April, our month of April, when the ark came to rest. This date coincides with Passover. This date coincides with Passover. So remember I've told you a lot about how this ark represents Christ in many, many, many ways. So the very date in hundreds of years from now, when God tells the people of Israel that are, are, yeah, the Israelites that are in Egypt to put the blood on the mantle on the doorpost, and I will come, the death angel is going to come over, but I will spare your home, the whole, you know, the signifying Christ in the month of April. That's also the week that Christ died. He died during Passover. Very interesting. Something you didn't know. Okay, I want you to remember something. These guys have been through crazy stuff. I want you to notice something. It's been a long time since they've heard from God. A long time. 
The last time they actually heard God's voice was before they climbed on the ark. A lot has happened. How many of you, during your trials and testings and difficult times, find that God goes silent on you? It's been five months now. Noah hasn't heard a peep from God. Not a peep. And he's gone through hell. Sort of. Whatever. He hasn't heard from God. He has not heard from God. Okay, let's keep reading. After 40 days, Noah opened the window and he, he, made in the, he had made in the ark and sent out a raven. A raven is a prey, a bird of prey. It feeds off of carcasses. Okay? So he first sends out the, a raven. And it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. It never says that this raven came back. The raven stayed out there. So that tells us that there was food for him to eat. There was dead carcasses laying around. There was death and debris. So the, the raven ate, but he never came back in. He was a flesh-eating thing that left the ark that signifies Christ, that signifies holiness, that signifies God, and he never came back. Very interesting. Satan, Lucifer, once dwelled with God. He fell. And he's never come back. He's a flesh-eating organism. All right? Just fun little stuff. Fun little stuff. Sent out a raven. Verse 8. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. Let me tell you a little bit about doves, okay? Doves were known for their beauty for their friendliness with both men and their mate. They were very much a mate-oriented uh, little bird. They love their mate. They come back, and they're mate for life. So they will always stick together. Doves love cleanliness, okay? They don't like to get their feet muddy. Doves eat off of seed off the ground. So when doves feed, they land on the ground and they eat off the ground. But remember, they like clean cleanliness. They don't like to get their little feet dirty, okay? Doves, um, they prefer valleys over mountaintops because seeds aren't usually up on mountaintops. Seeds are usually down in the valleys under trees. So that's, that's a dove. Dove represents the Holy Spirit. Cleanliness. Friendly, loving, loves its mate. Yeah? Okay, so let's read a little bit here about the dove. He, uh, see, But the dove, let's see, verse 8. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. Now, do you see the difference? Now he's looking for ground. That's why he sent out a dove. But the dove could find no place to set its feet... Because there was water all over the surface of the earth, so it came back to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back into the ark, into himself. The dove could find no place to land. He's searching for hearts to land on. Okay? You know, there's so much. I could, I could preach a thousand sermons out of this. It's incredible. You thought it was just birds flying back and forth. Okay. Now, uh, verse 10, 
He waited seven more days. And I want you to see that we're going to be in a seven-day cycle now, a Sabbath-day cycle. Okay? Seven more days, and he sent out the dove from the ark. And this time, when the dove returned to him in the evening, there was in its beak a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent out the dove again, but this time it did not return to him. So much is there, and I want to take a moment and, and digress just a hair with you guys. I, I, and I'm going to step away from any kind of scientific anything, because I haven't been able to really research this out. I'm going to step away from, um, you know, scripture, because it doesn't say anything more than the fact that he found an olive leaf. But I find it very interesting that there was an olive leaf. I thought God just totally smashed the whole earth. Now, an olive leaf is representative of a full-grown tree. On a tree. Did God leave one tree? <laughs> Everything else went, you know, down to become fossil fuels and petrified and all that and left one tree standing? How did that happen? I want to present to you, and this is clearly me, and don't call me a heretic if it's wrong, and if we find out, and I study some more this week and I get the real answer, but I wonder, I just wonder, how much recreation did God put into motion as that water was receding? Because those humans had to come out and they had to live. I find it very interesting that there was an olive leaf to be found, meaning there was an olive tree. Very, very significant. The olive tree is very, very significant in all of the rest of um, the Bible. You're going to find that it's, it's the tree of provision. It's the tree of oil. It's the tree. It's all over the place. It's the tree that represents generations. Because I don't know if you were here a year and a half or so ago, and I spoke on the olive tree, how the shoots come up. And there are trees that are massive that started thousands of years ago. And, but it's the, inter, the center part is dead. That generation has gone away. But that fed the other generations as it came up. The olive leaf and the dove is also signify peace. So whenever you see peace and you see the olive leaf, very, very interesting. Keep going. Because this isn't the real stuff yet. Came back with an olive leaf and Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth and he waited seven more days and sent him in this time it didn't come back. Verse 13. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, so now we're approaching almost 365 days of being in this ark. The water had dried up from the earth, and Noah then removed the covering of the ark and saw the surface of the ground was dry. Okay, so this, these people have been in this ark for nearly 365 days. They're peeking out there. Is it time? Can we get out of here yet? I don't know if I, if I was Noah's wife. Girls, what would you be saying? Get me out of here! I'm so sick of these four walls. I'm sick of cleaning this same old floor. I gotta get... Right? Anybody with me? Oh, come on. This whole row is like, mm-mm, not me. <laughs> Join me in this painful excursion here. Okay, so he looks out. He, he strips the covering back. There's quite a different, uh, few different interpretations of that. We won't go there. But he looks out and he saw that the ground... The surface of the ground was dry. The surface of the ground. What does that mean? What's underneath the surface? Mush. So on first 
spying looks pretty good. Let's go. But no, it does not go out. The surface of the ground was dry by the 27th day of the second month. So now we're sitting in here for even longer. Now, remember, we started this whole thing on the 17th day of the second month. Now it's the 27th day of the second month. The earth was what? Completely dry. Finally, verse 15. What does it say? Then God said, finally, after 375 days of no word from God, and this, these people have gone through Heck and back. They have never been on a boat lot road ride like that. They have never. And they keep peeking out like, what happened out there? Where is everybody? I mean, shock and awe. These crazy people. Finally, God says, God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground so that they can multiply in the earth and be fruitful and increase. So Noah came out. Oh, well, looky there. Noah obeyed. So Noah came out. There's one thing Noah learned, if he's learned anything over the last couple of hundred years, is that the most important thing to God is obedience. The most important thing to God is obedience. Obedience. He watched an entire race be destroyed because they wouldn't obey. He watched destruction and just complete chaos because they wouldn't obey. And if you remember back at the, in chapter 6, God gave him all these instructions. And what did it always say? God did, or Noah did exactly what God commanded. Noah sits in the ark for 370 days approximately, or 75 days approximately. Noah has not heard one peep from God. How about you? How do you like to wait? How do you like to wait? How is it? How is it for you when you go see the doctor? And you go in and you're told a certain time and the time comes and goes and you're just like, I don't know about you, but time is the most important thing on my brain. Come on. I want to and go up and complain. He didn't give Noah even the slightest hint of how long this was going to go on. Noah had learned. The most important thing to God is obedience. Waiting. Waiting on the Lord. There are many, many passages in the Word, and I have such an amazing thing to, to line out here for you about waiting on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. I'm going to give you some scriptures very, very, very quickly. Turn to Psalm 130. I'm going to blow through these. Be ready back there, Michael. Psalm 130, verses 5 through 8. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I put my hope. This is written by David, who's been uh, anointed to be king and then spends years and years running around hiding in caves. He's the anointed king. 
So why does he just run in there and take the crown? I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I put my hope. God had said it. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman waits for the morning, more than the watchman waits for the morning. You you have to understand that the watchman waits for the morning. And as soon as the watchman sees the morning, he can proclaim it. And he knows the character of the sun, that it will do what it's supposed to do. So as David waits for the Lord, it's as a watchman watching for the sun. You know the sun is going to come up. You also know with exact certainty that God will do what he said he's going to do. Psalm 62. Sorry, Psalm 62. I put all these little tabs and they're all working for me. My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my, my fortress and I will not be shaken. How long will you assault a man? Would, you, would all of you throw him down? This leaning wall, this tottering fence... They fully intend to topple him from his lofty place. They take delight in his lies. But find rest, verse 5. Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. What? Rest in the middle of all this evil? Rest? Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My soul comes from, my hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our ref- refuge. Wait. Psalm 145. Verse 15, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all that he has made. The Lord is near all who call him and all who call on the truth. This is his character. This is his character. What happens when you wait? What happens inside of you when you have to wait? What was happening inside of Noah when he had to wait 375 days going through Terrible, terrible things. I never heard a peep from God. What was happening? Isaiah 40. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding no one can fathom, for he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those whose what? That wait on the Lord or whose hope is in the Lord, they will. That's what was happening to Noah while he was waiting. He was seeking God. He was putting his faith and his hope and his trust in the very character of who he knew God to be. The most awesome God that was doing amazing things in front of him. And he said to himself, self, I'm going to wait for this one. I'm just going to put my hope. For those who wait on the Lord, they will renew their strength and soar with wings as eagles. Those, you know, we always want to soar, but we don't realize it's only relegated to the people who are waiting and placing their hope in God. So I'm going to just skip to the very end 
And then we will be done. Oh, shoot, my little thing. Psalm 27. And we will be done. I hear those kids back there. I want you to see this. I want you to hear it. I want you to feel it. That regardless of what you have gone through, what you are in the middle of, what tumultuous things are throwing you all around right now, and you are not hearing from God. We go through seasons where we don't hear from God. And what is our job during that time? Our job is to wait, to rest, to put our hope in him, to believe in his character, and just keep on going. Because God will speak again. And when God brought Noah out of that ark, can I just tell you something? The minute they set their sandals on the ground, there was no mud. It was completely dry. Completely dry. Had they gone out a week before, they would have gone, they might have slipped and broke their neck in the mud. When you wait on God's timing, it is absolutely perfect and everything goes well. If you jump out outside of God's timing and start doing it on your own, you're going to get your toes muddy. Wait, wait for him. Chapter 27. I'm going to start at verse 4. One thing I ask of the Lord. Go ahead and start playing. This is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the days of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling, and he will hide me in the shelter of the tabernacle and set me high upon the rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his temple, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says to you, says of you, seek his face. For your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me. Oh, my God and my Savior. Though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desires of my foes. For false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. Still confident of this, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart.